Um, I'm Hans, I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Paul. Um, yeah, you know, um, I, when I walked in, there were like six people here at six o'clock, and I thought, okay, this is going to be easy, no pressure. I know, I know three of the six, and then this room filled up pretty quick. So uh, I didn't know this many people lived in Tonopah. I, I thought it was just Paul and Tom and a few others, but apparently not. Um, I really liked the way it was thinking tonight that, you know, we went around the room and introduced ourselves and said that we were alcoholics. Um, that seems to be an Arizona thing. Um, I moved here seven months ago from the Sacramento area. And so I'm just kind of learning, you know, every region that I've been in in sobriety is a little bit different. They do things a little differently, but really we're all just the same, right? But I like the fact that we go around and introduce ourselves and confirm we're alcoholics. Um, you know, it makes me think of the first time that those words came out of my mouth. And um, the first time that I can remember was back in 1998. I was sitting in an intake room at a place called Walnut Creek Hospital, which was a recovery center. And, um, you know, I think, I think they had the blood pressure thing on me and they were taking notes and they asked me, you know, well, what are you doing here? And, and I said, you know, in a very shaky voice with tears coming down, I'm an alcoholic. And um, that was when I first worked part of the first step, right? I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, that I was an alcoholic. Now, the first step for me is a little bit more complicated. I've always looked at the first step as really two steps or step one in A and step one B, right? Because the first part is admitting we're powerless. But the second part is admitting we're, that our lives have become unmanageable. And that part I didn't get. I didn't get it for about six years. So um, let me kind of back up and talk a little bit about kind of, you know, my childhood, because I, I think a lot of that's important. It's our foundation. It, in, in a lot of cases, that's, uh, um, there are a lot of reasons we're here in these rooms based on our childhood. So when I came to meetings, I, I listened and um, I listened to people share, and a lot of people came from dysfunctional families, families where alcohol or drugs was a present or abused. Um, some came from, um, you know, families where they were personally abused or neglected. Um, that was not my case. I came from a very loving, supportive family. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's many people in these rooms that also came from very loving and supporting families where there wasn't a lot of alcoholism running around. But that's not what I listened for, right? Um, people had told me, listen for the similarities, not the differences. But I really, I wanted to listen for the differences because I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to be like you guys. So that stuck with me. Um, because I came from, I, I would say it was an upper middle class family. Um, I grew up with two loving parents and a sister. Um, we had everything we needed and I had most of what I wanted. Um, but you know, even as a child, I kind of felt 
like something was just a little off, right? Um, I didn't quite fit in. Um, it's kind of like if you've ever been to a party or an event where you walk into the room and you look around and everybody's talking to somebody and they're off in little groups and you're kind of standing there by yourself. <laughs> That's kind of what I felt like as a child. I mean, I had friends, but I didn't run with the popular crowd. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple close friends, but never felt like I really fit in. I was a pretty shy kid. Um, and so, you know, I, I just, that's important to me because that sort of carried through um, into adulthood to some degree. And, and I've been fortunate enough to sort of overcome that. And this program has helped me there, um, as did alcohol for a little while. Um, I have a vivid memory of when I was, and I can't remember whether I was in first or second grade, but I was, you know, probably six, seven years old. And uh, my mom was driving myself and my sister, who's a couple years older, to school. And, um, you know, we had this big Pontiac Catalina, 1966. And my sister sitting in the front seat, which you could do back then, right? <laughs> Kids can't do that now. Uh, I was in the back. And I remember halfway to school, my sister asked my mom, she said, hey, you know, my friend Susie, or whatever her friend's name was, um, told me she was adopted. What does that mean? And there was this long pause, and my mom went on to explain what it meant and then said, you know, you and your brother are adopted. And I just kind of, I, I still remember that to this day like it was yesterday. It was kind of one of those significant experience, childhood experiences. And, you know, other than that, it was never talked about again until I was an adult. So that also made me feel like I didn't quite fit in, right? I wasn't really part of the family. Like I wasn't part of a group. I was, you know, I also wasn't quite part of the family. I was different. So, um, you know, I did well in school other than being, being shy. I got good grades. Um, but I didn't run with the popular kids. So I didn't go to a lot of parties in high school, right? Uh, other kids got invited. I didn't. I might have had a sip or two of beer here and there. Um, so my family, my my dad would come home from work, and uh, he would have a bourbon and Coke before dinner, and rarely did he have a second one. Um, my mom didn't drink at all for religious reasons, and so alcohol wasn't real prevalent in in my growing up. Uh, I might have seen my dad tipsy twice, maybe three times, but, you know, it just, it wasn't a big issue. So um, when I got into high school and kids were drinking, um, it just wasn't part of what I wanted to do. Um, but then I wanted to fit in, right? And they were doing it, so I wanted to do it. The first time I, I really, you know, my first drunk, I was a... Uh, I was a junior in high school. And at that point, I was actually going to a boarding school. Um, and uh, I went home for Thanksgiving break for a week or five days or whatever. And somehow I got a hold of a fifth of Jack Daniels. <laughs> I don't know if I still, if I still to this day don't remember where I got it at 16. 
Uh, you know, I hid it in a sock in my suitcase and smuggled it back into the dorm. And the first Friday night, uh, myself and three other friends after lights out um, snuck out of the dorm. You know, we were on a fairly big campus and there was this hill that sort of overlooked campus. And we walked out at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock and climbed up on the hill. And three of us finished that fifth of Jack Daniels. The, the fourth didn't drink by his choice. I guess he was our, our designated walker, right? He, he, he got us back home safely, thank God, because I don't remember getting home. So from my first trunk, I was a blackout drinker. Um, not every time I drank, but certainly a number of times. So we finished off that bottle. Somehow, I, rem you know, I don't remember how I got home or back to my dorm room. I remember waking up the next morning at 9 or 10, still drunk and thinking, wow, this is really cool. I'm going to have to do this again, right? And that was the beginning. I was chasing that feeling for, for years. Um, I, you know, maybe two or three times that year drank again, you know, when somebody could get something. It wasn't that easy um, living in a dorm and going to a boarding school to, to get a hold of booze, but every now and then somebody would bring something and, you know, so it didn't happen that often, but then, you know, I went home and I, I ended up getting into college. And, and one of the things that I did as kind of an extracurricular thing is, um, um, theater. And I started out in stage crew, you know, doing sound and lights and stuff. And eventually, um, got on stage and did some acting and stuff. And, so what would happen is we'd have two or three rehearsals a week when we had a play or a musical going. And after rehearsal, everybody would get together and we'd go to a local restaurant or bar. And, you know, they were, most of them were in their, you know, in their 20s, 21. Um, and it was a lot easier then. You didn't get carded as much as you do today. And, you know, so we'd go out and we'd drink. And it was a, a social thing. And one of the things that I discovered is when I drank, I felt more like I fit in, right? I didn't, that awkwardness left me. I was able to talk. I was able to carry on conversations with pretty girls. Um, you know, it just, it was that icebreaker. It was that feeling that suddenly I'm part of, right? Alcohol has made me part of. And um, it worked for me. And it worked for 10 years, Um Till it started not working. <laughs> so I was able to kind of hold it together during college. Um, I went from social drinking, you know, maybe weekends or a couple times a week to pretty much by the time I was a senior, I was drinking daily. But, you know, maybe a couple beers at night while I was doing my homework or whatever. Um, so I was actually able to hold it together. Um, during this time, my mom, at the, at the end of college, my mom got cancer and passed away. And that was a significant event for me. Um, you know, to this day, I think, lot, well, we don't do emotions well. I can't speak for you guys. I don't do emotions well, right? <laughs> um, I know many alcoholics don't. Um, drinking, I tried to suppress emotions, and it did a good job. Uh, loss is an emotion that I find to be one of one of the hardest to deal with. And when it's the loss of a parent, um, I was, you know, as 
much closer to my mom probably than I was my dad. Um, that's kind of when my drinking took off. I really started to accelerate. I drank a lot more kind of to suppress those feelings because I didn't want to feel those feelings. They were uncomfortable. Um, so I graduated and I moved out to the Bay Area and I got a job in corporate finance. And uh, so I lived in Walnut Creek and I would jump on BART every morning in a suit and tie, go into San Francisco, go into my office. We work hard eight, eight, 10, sometimes 12 hour days. And I soon found that um, my little department, financial analysis, and a few others around us um, like to go out every night and go drinking, right? We work hard and we play hard. So, you know, we do our work and then around six o'clock, we all kind of get together and we go down to the Embarcadero for those who are familiar with San Francisco and hit the bars. And we drink for five or six hours and then jump on a BART train at 11, 12, I missed a few, um, <laughs> and take it back and stumble home, get a few hours sleep and do it all over the next day. And I did that for like 10 years. Um, I like to call that the, the Groundhog Days. If you've ever seen that Bill Murray movie, Groundhog, you know, it's like every day I'd wake up and it was kind of the same, but there were a few things that were a little different, right? But really it was just the same. Um, during that time, I, I met my first wife and um, we dated for a while and got married and um, ended up, um, we tried to have some kids and were not able, so we ended up adopting. So here I am, an adoptee, and I'm adopting kids. Um, and uh, one of the vivid memories I have from my oldest, Drew, was six months old. And this was kind of my first um, uh, moment of clarity, right? I, I mean, I knew I was a heavy drinker and, you know, my wife and nag me about it. Right. And I, I was aware of it. I, you know, I, I admitted that I was an alcoholic long before I said it or came to the room. So I just kind of knew deep down, but, um, my son was like six months old and we got a babysitter. And at that point I'd left the corporate world and I'd started my own business and, um, went to a, uh, Christmas party, my, my own company's Christmas party. And uh, of course I drank way too much and my wife got pissed and she left early and went back and I stayed late and closed up and then came home and I got home and I came into the bedroom and she's there in bed and our six month old is lying next to her and she asked me to put him in his crib and I went to pick him up and I lost my balance and I came that close to dropping him or falling on him. And, um, yeah, it was not a good scene. And that was kind of a moment of clarity for me. You know, I've got a problem. Things, things aren't right here. Um, so she took him to, to bed and I just kind of, you know, that was, I guess, a turning point for me as far as, um, my, my willingness and desire to get sober or at least to solve my problem. I'm not sure I was ready to get sober, but I was ready to drink less, right? like drink like a normal person. Um, so we had a long talk about that. And um, one of the things my wife said is, you know, you've got a problem. You've got to take care of it. Um, I understand you're running your own business. 
you, you know, you, you can't, you know, just go away for 28 days, but I'll wait, but I'm not going to wait forever. So that was kind of her ultimatum. Um, one of the things about leaving the corporate world and having my own business is um, I lost accountability, right? Because I didn't have a boss anymore. And I had a great manager on site. And, you know, if I woke up and was hungover and didn't feel like coming in, I would just call her up and say, I'm working at home today. And she'd take over, right? So very little accountability. And, you know, we, we hear that this is a progressive disease. So, you know, I started out just drinking an occasion when I was in high school to drinking every weekend to drinking pretty much most nights um, to now drinking excessively. And one of the things a, a friend in my 20s had taught me um, is this little thing called hair of the dog. And when you wake, wake up and you're feeling rough, one or two pops and it kind of smooths things out. So once I found that little trick, um, you know, I, I would probably overshoot the mark a couple times a week. Um, I'd wake up, I'd feel hungover, headache, whatever. I'd, you know, rough it, take Bart into work, um, just kind of struggle through the morning and then go out to lunch and have a couple beers. And that would sort of smooth things out. So there I was, you know, not only drinking every evening, I was now drinking at noon. And then when I left the corporate world and had my own business and I woke up feeling rough two or three times a week, a vodka and orange juice in the morning would smooth things out. So now I'm a morning drinker, right? Drinking every day, <laughs> around the clock, essentially. So that is the progressiveness of this disease. Um, so what did I do when my wife gave me the ultimatum? I decided... I'm going to go see a therapist, pay him $100 an hour to fix me, right? Good idea. That's the easy way, pay somebody to fix me. So I went and, you know, I was, I did therapy for a month or two. And uh, this guy sort of, you know, he saw right through me. He knew what was going on. Um, and so he said, you know, after about six weeks, he said, I have another client and he has had really good success with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I asked him if he would take you to a meeting, and he said he'd be happy to. So I'd really like you to go check it out to see if it'll work for you. And so I begrudgingly said, yeah, okay, you know, I'll go. So he gave me this guy's number. This guy called me and said, hey, I go to a Sunday morning meeting um, in Lafayette. <laughs> At the hut, the Little League hut, if you've ever been there, Tim, Tim and I were talking about Lafayette earlier. Um, and uh, so I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I'll meet you there at 10. He said, oh, no, 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 I'll stop by and pick you up. <laughs> he's no dummy, right? He knew I wasn't going to get there on my own. So Sunday morning rolls around, you know, and it's 9 or 9.30, and I'm hungover, and it's, it's January, and it's just pouring rain. And, you know, so I, he pulls up and I drag myself out and we drive to the hut and the hut's this little ramshackle shack next to a little league ballpark. And that was where they had meetings in Lafayette. 
And, you know, it had this big overhead gas heater that would kick on in the middle of the meeting. Anyway, it was a, a big book study, and there were about 20 people there. And I'm freezing and soaking wet and hungover. And, you know, the book's getting passed around. And I pass when it comes to me because I'm sure I couldn't have held it without shaking too much to read. And I don't recall hearing a thing that was said at that meeting. And this nice guy, and I, I can't even remember his name, you know, got me back in the car and took me home and said, I'll, I'll call you, you know, in a day or two. And he did. And I thanked him. And I didn't get to another meeting for two years. So, that, but that was my introduction to AA, right? The seed was planted. So two years later, things are going downhill. And um, I checked myself into Walnut Creek Hospital. And it was actually a great recovery program. Um, they had both an inpatient as well as a outpatient program. I did three days inpatient, I guess, to kind of detox. And then they let me do kind of an intensified outpatient program because at that point I was still trying to run a business. And so I would come for uh, four hours in the morning, do group. And then, you know, after a month, it was three days a week and then one day a week. And one of the things that they required as part of that program is that you go to AA meetings. You work the first three steps and you get a sponsor. Those were the three requirements in addition to all the other education that they did. Um, so I did. I, I went to a meeting and, you know, in, in good fashion, I chose a sponsor that really wasn't available to, to sponsor me or work the steps. He was a grad student at UC Berkeley and didn't have a whole lot of time to sponsor somebody, but didn't want to say no. Um, so, you know, we didn't really work the steps. I talked on the phone maybe once a week, whatever. Anyway, I, I managed to stay sober for just under six months, but I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable the whole time. Um, it, I was the definition of a dry drunk that whole time. Uh, every time I went into a restaurant, um, you know, I saw the booze bottles lined up in back of the bar. I was focused on them. Every time I walked into a grocery store to the bread aisle, you know, there's the, the liquor aisle. Um, it was just calling my name, you know. Um, yeah, so I ended up sneaking and drinking and the wife caught me and that was sort of the end that was hey, you need to get out so you take care of this. So I got myself an apartment. And I spent the next six years trying to get sober, coming in and out of AA. I would go to meetings. I would get some time, sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months, and then I would drink again. But one thing I did is every time I came back, I tried to do something a little differently, right? So the first time I came in AA, you know, I went through the motions. I went to a couple meetings a week. I got a sponsor who wasn't really able to work with me. So I, I figured this time I'll get a sponsor who actually is going to work the steps. So my first real sponsor, Matt M., um, great guy. Um, we worked the steps. We did the whole deal. Um, but you know, for some reason it didn't stick. I wasn't doing something right. It wasn't just the steps. So I came back in and I thought, well, you know, they tell me I need to hang around sober people, 
right? Because most of my friends w drank like I did. That's why they were my friends, right? <laughs> my, my whole life was centered around alcohol. My, my hobby was brewing beer. Uh, dry, you know, our, our, our vacations were driving up to Napa for the weekend and wine tasting. And yeah, it was just, it was all centered around alcohol. Um, so I had to change that. Uh, I heard somebody once say in a meeting, um, when you get sober, you need to have, you need to pick, um, new playmates and new playgrounds. And, um, that was the case for me. So I had to leave some of my best friends behind and try to make new friends, new friends that were sober. So one of the things I decided to do, I like to play golf. And there was a group of guys in my fellowship who went out once a month and played golf and then, you know, went out to dinner afterwards. And so I kind of joined that group and I did that. And uh, I was actually able to string 18 months together. And, uh, one Saturday we went out and we, you know, I spent six hours on a golf course with a bunch of sober guys and we met at the clubhouse afterwards and, you know, a bunch of guys said, Hey, we're going to go to this Mexican restaurant. Do you want to come? And I'm like, yeah, I think I'll just go home. And on the way home, I stopped at a liquor store and picked up a 12 pack and I was out again for a year. And to this day, I can't tell you why. Right. Um, I spent a long, a lot of time trying to figure out why, um, beating myself up, um, and go into meetings and not being able to get sober again. And finally I was in a meeting and some old timer, you know, I raised my hand and kind of shared that. He said, you drank cause you were thirsty. Now get over it. Right. And that's what it took. I, I had to just get over it and, and move forward. Right. I mean, as simple as that. Um, so I called my original sponsor, Matt M., and he had worked on and off with me over the six years, but hadn't talked to me for a couple of years. We hadn't connected. And I said, Matt, I, I, I got to get sober again. Can, can you help me out? Are you willing to sponsor me again? And there was a long pause. And he said, you know, anytime somebody from AA asks for help, I'm there to help them out. However... <laughs> however i'm going to ask you to do a couple things and one of them is i'm going to ask you to do 90 meetings in 90 days because you haven't done that yet and he said and i feel a little awkward asking and matt at this point probably had 18 20 years he said and i feel awkward asking you to do that because i didn't do it but i think that's what you need and if you're not willing to do that, then you have to ask yourself, are you really willing to do what it takes to stay sober? And I was like, oh, you know, I had my own business. I was running. I, at that point, I was a single dad with two grade school kids that I shared custody with. And I had them ask, how am I going to do 90 meetings in 90 days? Well, I didn't have any problem drinking every night for 90 days, right? So I figured it out. And I did 90 meetings in 90 days. And uh, that was 19 years ago, and I haven't had a drink since. So yes, that's, <laughs> it was, it was a, a long process, six years of figuring it out. And, you know, it came down to willingness. Um, and it also came down, I learned during that time that 
um, I figured out how to work the second part of the first step, right? On the surface, everything looked like my life was manageable, right? I had my own business. I had a house. I had a car. All the material things were in order. So I didn't think my life was unmanageable. But, you know, when you really dig down deep, let me give you a for instance. Saturday morning, every Saturday morning, I would pick my kids up from my ex-wife and um, take them to the park, the playground. And um, that was kind of my, you know, beginning of the weekend deal. And they would play on the equipment. And I would have a coffee half full of whatever, whiskey or, you know, Kahlua or whatever it was sitting there watching them, watching them play. And they, come on, dad, come you throw. Oh, that's okay. You know, I'll be okay. Anyway, I was not really a part of their lives. I was, I was an observer. I wasn't, I wasn't participating in them. That is unmanageability. I would then get into the car, certainly with a blood alcohol level over 0.01, and drive my kids to lunch, right? Because that was the treat after, after the playground. We'd go have lunch out with dad. And they would say, you know, can we go to McDonald's because they have happy meals? And I, no, you know, let's go to Mel's Diner because Mel's has better fries, right? Well, Mel's also had beer. <laughs> That, my friends, is unmanageability, um, at least for me. Um, it took many years to kind of make amends to my kids. And I didn't make the kind of formal amends we made to adults because they were still pretty young when I got sober, five and eight. Um, but what I tried to do is I tried to make um, living amends. I tried to be the best dad that I could for the rest of their years growing up and be a participant in their lives as, as opposed to an observer, right? So um, I, I became part of the fellowship. Uh, I made, when I first came in here, I didn't, you know, not only did I not want to be like you, I didn't want to hang out with you, right? <laughs> You're a bunch of drunks. Um, it, it ended up that my best friends came from the program. And that wasn't by design. It just sort of happened. Um, I started hanging out with people who were sober, who had good sobriety. I, I connected with two people in early sobriety, um, one whose name was Peter. And Peter's still a friend today. And I met him at the beginning. And um, so he stayed sober while I went in and out for six, six years. And he continued to support me and hang out with me and be a good influence. And so when I got sober, you know, he was there. And soon after I got sober, he start, He worked on big construction projects. And he started traveling quite a bit. And so he, was, he worked in London for two years. So he would go to London for two, three months and then come back home. And we'd go to meetings and hang out for a week or two. And then he'd go back and work. And um, he was very active in the program um, for the first six years. And then he started to travel and he tried to go to meetings and he said, you know, it's just, it's not the same. Um, and, and I'm busy, you know, I'm working 12 hour days. So he didn't really go to meetings when he was traveling. 
And then he came back from London. He was back for six months. And then he went to Chicago for two years and kind of the same routine. Hey, I tried a couple meetings and it's just different. And, you know, I like the AA we have in the Bay Area, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, he hit a bout of depression when I was six years sober and he was 12 years. And um, he picked up and um, he, I watched him lose everything. This, he was a very bright, very successful guy, um, had a beautiful townhouse in a gated community on a golf course, driving a BMW, um, all the material things you'd want. It was all gone in six months, and he was living on the streets. Um, at that point, I'd had six years, and I had kind of dialed my program back. I hate to say it, but I was becoming complacent. Um, I had a friend who used to say that complacency is the number one enemy of this sober alcoholic. Um, we become complacent because our lives get good, right? They get easy. I don't need to go to as many meetings. I don't need to, you know, work with people, whatever, whatever the thing is. So um, watching him, he saved my life because I have no doubt that I would have probably continued to become complacent stop going to meetings, and probably pick up a drink. But I watched him do that, and I tripled my meetings and really got involved in the program again. And um, he, again, he lived on the streets of Oakland for several years, uh, you know, sleeping out in tents under tarps, uh, in homeless shelters, um, while I continued to get sobriety and make friends in the program. Um, I got a call from him about three years later and he said, you know, I need some help. Can you get me up to Santa Rosa? Oh, there's a place, there's a bed there, there's a program there. And I went and picked him up on, um, Martin Luther King drive in Oakland, not a great area. And he had all of his life belongings in a hefty bag. And we threw him in the car and I drove him up to Santa Rosa and it took him about another five years of in and out and in and out to get it. But he's one of the lucky ones because I know a lot of people who have had double-digit sobriety who went out and never got back. Um, today, he leaves a ha happy life. He's, uh, he actually runs a um, sober living program in Oakland. Um, and he's, got a, you know, he's gotten his, not his original 12 years back, but he's working on it. So that's, that's a happy story. Um, but I learned from that. I, you know, I learn by observing. And I think that's what we do in the rooms, right? We listen to stories. We listen to people. We hear people who raise their hand, who've had some sobriety and then went out. Um, we learn from people if we're observant and if, if we're willing to learn. Um, one of the things that I heard in the rooms is, again, back to pe people who move right, who, who had great sobriety and then they move and they don't really like the AA that, you know, they don't connect. It's different here. Um, so they stop going to meetings and then they pick up and then they come back and they raise their hands. Well, at 12 years sobriety, I met my current wife and um, her job took her to Sacramento and I chose to follow. And it's not a long way from the Bay Area, but it's an hour and a half. So it's a move. And um, I knew I needed to plug in up there. 
And um, so I did. Um, I did the most awkward thing for somebody who's shy. Um, I went to meetings and I raised my hand like a newcomer and said, hey, I'm new to the area. I've never been to this meeting. And I introduced myself. And, um, you know, before long, I, I had connections and friends up there. And we were going out to dinner. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just like it was in my old fellowship. They did things different, but, you know, who cares? AA is AA. We're all here really for the same reason, you know. Um, so I spent six years in that fellowship. I was feeling like I was just becoming part of, and then my wife gets transferred here. <laughs> so here I am again, seven months in, right, trying to plug in again. So I appreciate your inviting me because this, this helps me plug in. Um, I've been going to my men's meeting on Wednesday night. I were in Verado where I live, and it's a great group of guys. And, um, you know, AA's a little different here, but it really isn't. It's just the same, right? We're all just here trying to get sober. So thank you for listening to me tonight. Thank you.